Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 174. Yes, I know. I faked everyone out in the last episode by saying that Russo's testimony and Ed O'Donnell's testimony would be forthcoming, and I just decided to skip it. There has been so much detail on Russo already, including what I provided in the last episode, so much so that I myself feel the fatigue setting in on the topic. So let's for now turn to some other topics. Overall, I've got a handful of stories left that specifically relate to the Garrison investigation and that I want to address before we leave this subseries. And we're going to do that over the next several episodes. The great thing about the Garrison investigation is that it reinvigorated a serious pursuit of witnesses that were just in the shadows, just far enough away that it was easy for the Warren Commission to ignore them, or in many cases, just simply sidestep them in their entirety. Many of these key witnesses were not even interviewed by the Warren Commission. You know, I heard someone say the other day that the Garrison investigation shook the tree and it shook things loose. And you know, I think that's a great analogy. Anyway, the point is that we will be finished with the Garrison investigation soon enough, but it's a great jumping off point to get into all these other tentacles and estuaries of the lake, so to speak. Characters like Richard Case Nagel and others, Thomas Beckham and the like. Look, I have to tell you that one great thing that's happened as a result of doing these most recent episodes is that I decided to reach out and connect with Joan Mellon. And we were able to speak a couple of different times this past week. She is one of the most delightful and genuine individuals. And after an hour of conversation on aspects of her book and the Garrison investigation, too, we decided to do more together. I am hopeful to have Joan on the podcast soon and more to come on all of that. I haven't decided yet where we're going after we finish up the Garrison investigation as we have so many major topics still to tackle. But the good news is that there are a lot of options. I'm reminded that we haven't even touched on the murder of J.D. Tippett and we haven't even explored yet really anything on Jack Ruby. Still, I am inclined to stay on the trail of the assassins as it relates to some of the things that have come out of the New Orleans investigation. And those two characters will figure into it all naturally anyway. So let's see. And just remember, as I like to say, quoting Forrest Gump, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. I do want to thank all the listeners who went over to the JFK Enduring Secret YouTube channel and signed up and subscribed. I really appreciate it, but it's still a relatively small number of you that have done that. And if you haven't done that yet, really, please do so. I would personally appreciate it. It doesn't cost you anything, and it only takes a minute. Our podcast has consistently been in and out of the Apple Podcast Top 50 documentaries in America. 
It's about 70 as a ranking right now. I was around 52 a couple of weeks ago, and it's been as high as 42 in the ranking. So it really bounces around depending upon what is happening with other podcasts. I can't thank you enough for these rankings, because if you're listening today, you've contributed to that success. But as you know, I do not run any ads, and I generate no revenue off of this podcast. I do practically no marketing, except word of mouth. So please tell your friends about it. And subscribing to the YouTube channel will ultimately help that too. Having no ads has been a deliberate decision on my part. It's purely educational. I have spent a good portion of the last three years of my life developing the podcast myself and delivering it to you. It's my gift not only to each of you who have been listening, but to all future listeners who have a wonder about this complex topic. I have one more thing that I'm going to address here, and it's related to what I just said. I rarely look at the podcast reviews that are posted on Apple and similar venues, because to tell you the truth, I'm sensitive to what people say. I have to be in the right frame of mind to look at them, but eventually I do catch up with mostly all of them. I grew up in a household with a mother and a father who displayed the ultimate respect for one another and for others. I am 62 years of age now, and I've yet to live up to their pure and rather beautiful example, but I am staying at it. My father was the ultimate in holding back and not using careless words. Many of you of faith, and others too, will recognize the biblical phrase that goes like this, careless words will cut like a sword. Somewhat related and just said in another way, well, a very wise person once told me, Jeff, it's not what you say in life, it's how you say it. I don't always get everything right in this podcast, but I do my best to bring something special to you as listeners, slightly flawed as it may be at times. Most of the reviews that I get are quite positive, and I thank you for that, but more importantly, most of them are delivered in a very kind and highly respectful way. It's thrilling to get those that are so positive. It's like rocket fuel for the podcast. But occasionally, one comes in that is not that way. You know, and once again, I don't mind criticism, although I would prefer if you do have constructive criticisms about the podcast to direct them privately to me using my email. And that is podcastjfk at gmail.com. The listenership is large enough now that it does behave a little bit like a normal distribution. Yes, the one that we all learned about in statistics class. It's got those tight ends of the tails of the distribution that tend to show up in the reviews. Those folks that are absolutely positive and thankful for the podcast are at one end of the tail. And of course, those reviews are highly motivational to me. And then those at the other end of the tail of the distribution. Reviews that are exactly the opposite. Everyone else in the middle of the distribution just listens and goes on with the rest of their lives. But it's the tales that talk on the reviews. For those of you who find yourself in the critical group, and I might add that I'm extremely happy and lucky 
because it's extremely rare that I even get a negative review. In one sense, I am very thankful for that. But I do understand that criticism can be good too. So if you are in that critical group, I would just ask that you adopt the approach that I just mentioned, the one that my mom and my dad and a wise man taught me. Remember, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. I got a review the other day by an unnamed individual who goes by a pseudonym. I won't repeat his or her pseudonym name, as I don't want to embarrass anyone, nor do I want to give audience to it. But it was a classic example of what I would like to see avoided in the review section. Maybe this person will learn something from what I am about to say. So, I am going to point it out. First, it did contain some solid and deserving criticism. All things I plan on working on. So thank you for that. But the rest of the tirade should have been expressed privately rather than publicly. And it was delivered with just enough rudeness to reveal some of the characteristics or at least tendencies of the person who lives underneath that comment. Enough so that I am mentioning it here. Not because this individual posted a negative review. It's their right to do so. It was because of how it was delivered. Lots of negative things said about me and how I deliver the podcast. I won't go into all of that here, but you know, one of the things that struck me was not so much the ranting and the raving and the negative things said about me, but the way this person addressed me. This person didn't even have the courtesy of using Mr. in front of my last name. I was just depicted as Crudel, in all caps. Well, I will say this. I think no matter what you think, after 173 episodes and at 62 years of age and having given three years of my life to this project, I do deserve a Mr. in front of my name, if you're going to deliver a heap of criticism anyway of that nature. I'm just saying. And for all the loyal listeners out there who are still here and all in on the wander with me, well, as you know already, you can simply call me Jeff. You have more than earned that right. I suppose we may lose this one anonymous listener now. And so there will still just be an N of one producing the show. And I guess the listener count will now be thousands minus one. I won't be surprised, nor will I be relieved if that happens. Maybe just a little sad. But I hope he or she, whoever they are, listens to this last episode, at least the last episode that they may be listening to, and gains something from it, no matter how much they hate this wander. You see, Civility and decorum in our society is at an all-time low. Social media has contributed to that. Lots of things have contributed to that. However, it's still, no matter what, an individual choice and an individual responsibility to practice civility and use manners and what you say and how you say it, to use them in what you do and what you write and how you conduct yourself generally. So, 
Let's all learn from this. Let's all kick our civility up a notch. Let that be the gift that this listener and reviewer gave to all of us today on the podcast. And by the way, I'll do my best to receive the criticism and kick my own performance and the podcast up a notch as well. Everyone deserves that, including our anonymous poster. So, let's get to what we are going to cover today on the podcast. It's the story of the attempted bribe of Al Boboff, a bribe by the Garrison investigators. Boboff was a close friend of David Ferry, and out of all of this comes the core question of whether Garrison's team committed a crime that was not prosecuted, and whether Bo Buff and his attorneys injected their own dirty tricks into this process, just to entangle Garrison and his team. And of course, if the allegations were true, that it was a bribe, then whether or not, in the bigger sense of it all, whether or not this tactic was used on more than one witness, used to get the desired testimony that was necessary to bury Clay Shaw testimony that may have been falsely teased out of these witnesses, and testimony that would have shown a pattern of behavior that was completely unethical. But wait a minute. Times were different then. It wasn't even a crime to offer financial or other assistance to witnesses. The issue is really where the line was drawn, drawn in the times in which it occurred and whether they crossed over that line as investigators And keep in mind something here. Whether we believe it was right or wrong in today's environment is a completely different question. And it's actually irrelevant as a juror in 1967. So we have to be careful about avoiding the tendency to use the wrong yardstick here when evaluating what Garrison and his team were doing at the time to get at the truth and bring justice. Aside from all of that, the real question is whether they did it to get at the real truth, or whether they did it to simply get at the needed answer. That is where you, as a juror, will be pivotal in this episode. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 174 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Al Bo Buff was one of the two men who went with David Ferry on the late-night trip that Ferry took on the night of November 22, 1963, the day that Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, a trip that took him from Kenner, Louisiana, to Houston, Texas, and then on to Galveston. Ferry and the two young men would travel into the night and finally make their way to the Winterland Ice Skating Rink in Houston, Texas. They would arrive there around 3.30 p.m. that afternoon on the 23rd. There were all sorts of things about that trip that raised suspicions. For instance, Ferry spent a good deal of time making and receiving telephone calls while at the rink, and at least one call was placed to G. Ray Gill in New Orleans. Ferry was doing work for Gill at the time, So that part in and of itself was not necessarily self-indicting. Gill was a notable mob attorney at the time, representing, among others, 
Carlos Marcello, the notorious mafia don of New Orleans. We'll hear from the skating rink manager in a moment, and it seems pretty clear that Ferry was making it a point of being seen that day at the rink, which was what gave rise to the idea that his actions seemed to be consistent with someone attempting to establish their whereabouts as an alibi. Garrison and his team were closely focused on this trip as they believed that the true reason for it was Ferry's participation in some way in the president's assassination plot. And because they believed that fact, it was then a logical leap of faith that the two young men that Ferry took with him on the trip to the Houston skating rink, Mel Coffey and Al Bobuff, would likely know something more. Something more that would be incriminating and lead to the unraveling of the lies that they sensed that Ferry had been telling them. Did these two young men see something? Did they hear something? Were they told something? Were they participants themselves in this element of the conspiracy? That is the question that the garrison team was asking. And Al Bobuff was vulnerable. He was young, in his 20s. He was good-looking. He was close to Ferry. Perhaps during this time frame, one of Ferry's closest personal confidants and he was gay. Yet his lifestyle in 1967 was not highly accepted socially in America, and even in the heart of New Orleans. And what made things trickier for Al Bobuff was that he was married with a wife and a child at home, seemingly living an Aussie and Harriet existence on the surface, and with a family that did not understand or even know about his alternative sexual lifestyle. That made Al Bobuff vulnerable enough. But in the era when there was no cell phones and selfies were not a thing and most private things, like same-sex sex, could be kept private, Bobuff would thrive with Ferry and then ultimately be counted among the unlucky. Photographed in compromising sexual moments with those photographs tucked away in David Ferry's apartment only to be discovered and confiscated by the authorities as Garrison's investigators scrambled to retrieve everything in Ferry's apartment that was still there within hours after his death on February 22, 1967. It didn't take Garrison's team long to figure out how to introduce those photos into the conversation. They had approached Bobuff, but he was playing a cat-and-mouse game with Garrison's team and he retained counsel relatively soon after the initial discussions with the investigators. He would retain Hugh Agnisios as his lawyer. But let's back up a minute. One of the most famous scenes related to the investigation, and one that is depicted so famously in the movie JFK, is the trip that Ferry made to the ice skating rink in Houston. So let's elaborate just a little bit more on that. There are a number of versions contained in assassination lore as it relates to the details regarding this trip to the skating rink, but I always like the version that's given under sworn testimony, and the only place you can find any of that is testimony given at the Clay Shaw trial by Roland Charles Roland, the president and general manager of the Winterland Skating Rink in 1963. So here goes. 
Mr. Rowland, who was a professional skater back in the day, worked that Saturday at the rink and arrived to work that morning. The rink had a special event going on that day as they were giving skating lessons to the Girl Scouts. Roland personally gave the lessons to the girls, and the session lasted till about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, causing Roland to take a late lunch, leaving the building somewhere between 3.25 or 3.30 and returning somewhere between 4 o'clock and 4.15. All three men, David Ferry, Melvin Coffey, and Al Bobuff, during their interviews with the DA's office, gave varying times related to their arrival at Winterland. The 3 o'clock p.m. time seems most likely, given that Roland testified that he saw them for the first time after he came back from his late lunch. Ferry made quite an impression on Roland. It was as if Ferry was going out of his way to be sure that Roland wouldn't forget him, or at least forget his presence there that day. Roland described it as being a very unusual thing that created such a memory for him, a fairy. And that was because of the way that Ferry approached him throughout the time he was there. Roland testified that Ferry had called him the week before, or several days before, asking about the services that were available at the rink. Roland would make it clear, though, that the rink got many calls from people coming from out of town because ice skating is an unusual thing to many people and they like to try the sport. So the calls themselves from Ferry weren't unusual, but Ferry's behavior once he got to the rink was unusual. There was just something about David Ferry. Roland would go on to explain that Ferry made quite a point of making contact, and actually, as Roland describes it, made a little bit of a pest of himself at the time. Roland explained why he was able to observe Ferry so often during his stay at the rink. The areas within the skating rink in which he worked and handled were situated right up front, close to the entrance of the skating rink itself. Roland handled the pro shop, the skate counter, and the ring ticket window, and his office was also nearby, as was the pay telephone, which is centrally located in that same general area. Ferry would approach Roland around five times during his time at the rink that day, first to introduce himself and later to introduce Coffee and Bo Buff to Roland. And three other times, by Roland's account, he would approach him again, not to start a conversation, but rather oddly, just to say that they were still there, almost as if to establish timestamps related to their conversations. Some versions of this story say that Ferry himself actually ice skated, and others have him doing no ice skating at all. I believe Roland's testimony, under oath, clears this up. Ferry did not buy a ticket to skate, nor did he rent any ice skates, and Roland never saw him skate. Instead, as Roland would testify, Ferry spent most of his time in the area around the payphone in plain view from where Roland was working. In contrast, Roland said that the two young men that came with Ferry, Coffee and Bo Buff, would spend most of their time ice skating. Ferry and crew would depart around 5.45 in the afternoon from the Winterland skating rink, and Roland remembers the time well, because Ferry made it a point to come up and address Roland one more time, letting him know all three of them were leaving.
As I just said, Roland states that Ferry did not buy an ice skating ticket to ice skate that day. No ice skating could have been done without the purchase of a ticket. And Roland did not see him ice skating as well, as I've said. It's important to emphasize this as that story has been bastardized over the years. Roland would go on to say that he observed Ferry pacing around the general area and sometimes taking phone calls on the payphone and sometimes making phone calls on the payphone. He would go on to describe Ferry as having red hair and wearing a toupee and also sporting a very ruddy complexion. After Ferry's death, Louis Ivon and Lynn Loisel on the night of March 8th would approach Bo Buff and would propose to provide help for Bo Buff, financial help and assistance in the form of cash and perhaps a plum job, perhaps even ending up as a pilot once it was all set and done. Bo Buff liked to fly, actually, and went up with Ferry many times. Bo Buff would inform his lawyer, and soon there was an arranged meeting for the following day between Garrison's investigators and Bo Buff at Agnicio's office in downtown New Orleans. As it turned out, only Lynn Loisel showed up for the meeting. Louis Ivon couldn't make it, so it was a meeting that was attended by Lynn Loisel, Hugh Agnicios, and Al Bobuff. It took place on March 9, 1967, at about 2.30 p.m. that afternoon. At the meeting, Bobuff's lawyer, Hugh Agnicios, secretly tape-recorded the following conversation with Garrison's investigator, Lynn Loisel. It was 56 years ago now, and we have to read from the transcript because the tape itself mysteriously disappeared. But we'll get to that in a moment. So here goes. There are three characters in this next reading. As I've just pointed out, Hugh Ignatius, the lawyer representing Bo Buff, and Lynn Loisel, the member of Garrison's investigative staff, and then finally Al Bo Buff joins them and enters later into the conversation. I'll use sort of my regular voice for Hugh Ignatius on this, and I'll use some sort of bastardized Cajun accent to represent Lynn Loisel. I'm not sure what I'm going to do yet when Bo Buff gets on the scene, but we'll figure that out. I thought you were coming with your partner. What's his name? You mean Ivan? Ivan. He didn't come out with you? No. We've got too much to do. Now, let me bring you up to what Al and I were talking about last night. I told him we had liberal expense money, and I said the boss is in a position to put him a job. You know, possibly of his choosing, of Al's choosing. Also, there would be, we would make a, a hero out of him instead of a villain. You understand. Everything would be to your satisfaction. There's no, I mean, we can't, you know, we can change the story around. You know, enough to positively, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know, eliminate him, you know, into any type of conspiracy or what have you. The only thing we want is the truth. You know, no no deviations on his part, you know. We want to present the truth. We want the facts and the facts of the assassination. That's what we want. And for this, 
the release. You know, the thing will be typed up in such a way that Al, you know, will be free and clear. Now, in other words, what you want him to do, he will come up and give you such evidence that you will be able to couch him in terms of being a hero. That's correct. And you'll also, you, you have unlimited expense account, you said, and you're willing to help him along? Well, I would venture to say, well, I'm, you, you know, fairly certain we could put $3,000 on him just like that, you know? I'm sure we would help him financially, and I'm sure we, uh, real quick, we could get him a job. We're not interested in Ferry's personal life or, you know, the homosexual thing. Now, about the job, what do you mean by that? Al said he'd like a job on an airline, and I feel the job can be had, you know? Well, now, these are tough things to come by. What makes you feel that you should be in a position? Well, let's say that. Uh, well, his connections. You know, for instance, he was talking about a small operation such as Space Air Freight. I know with one phone call, he could go out to the Space Air Freight and write his own ticket, you know? That's just space air freight. That's not Eastern or something else. But I feel like we have people who are stepping stones to the larger airlines and, you know, and so forth. They're politically motivated, too, you know, like, like anything else. Well, now, Len, let me ask you this. You're speaking about the district attorney, Jim Garrison, and his ability to place Al in a responsible pilot's position with an airline. That's correct, according to Al's own ability. First year or two, he might have to, you know, stay in a room in a back with the charts or something. I, I don't know. And then he advances a little further. Then he's a co-pilot. Then he's a pilot. Now, let me ask you this. Lynn, is this something that you have thought up yourself or that Garrison? He knows about the situation? That's right. And he's agreed that if we could in some way assist you, that you will be able to give him these three things? That's correct. Well, now, supposing you tell me, I don't want to lead you down any pathway. No, no, look. <coughs> what do you think that Al has that he could help you with? We had a man sitting, well, First off, I feel, well, we feel that Al is as close to Dave Ferry as anybody could have been. All right? Now, I know this is a rough, uh, I'm drawing you a rough sketch. We have a man who has come forth recently, they were referring to Perry Russo, told us he was sitting in a room with Ferry, Clay Shaw, two Cubans, and Oswald. Oswald was in it? Oswald was in it. Where was this meeting? In his home? Ferry's home? If I'm not, uh, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it was. Uh-huh. I don't know. All right. I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go into, you, you know. Yes, I understand. I, I don't want you to. But anyhow, the assassin, you know, Ferris said the best way in which the assassination can be done is to get the man to get the president in crossfire, and went on to discuss that. And when Clay Shaw and Ferry, and I believe it was Clay Shaw and Ferry, or maybe it was Clay Shaw and Oswald, 
having a little heated argument, Clay Shaw wanted some of his methods used, or his thoughts, you know, used, but anyhow, that's what we have in mind, you know, along that line. Was Al supposed to have been at that meeting? No, Al wasn't at that meeting. Well, how is Al supposed to be able to help you with that meeting? Well, Al is in, you know, Al being as close to Ferry. Yes, has to know the whole thing from the beginning to the end. He has to know it. I see. And you're convinced from all the evidence that Al could not be as close as he was to Dave without knowing something in some way. That's right. Now, let me ask you this, Lynn. You don't mind my calling you that, do you, Mr. Loisel? No, positively not. Let me ask you this. Do you think that, that uh, of course, you know, if my client, Bo Buff, if he knew about this and didn't tell you he's committing a crime, he's an accessory after the fact, isn't he? No, he's not. i tell you how we go about that. Well, Dave Ferry, bless his poor soul, is gone. Al was scared of Dave. Al has a family, you know. When Al first met Dave, he was a single man. Al has a family now. Al was threatened by Dave, you know, to never to, to divulge this. Al or his family would be taken care of. I see. Uh, you understand now that poor Dave is gone, Al has voluntarily come forward and told of his knowledge. I mean, there's 99,000 ways we could skin that cat, you know. I mean, it's something, you know, that's his patriotic duty. He's... Now he's placing his family, you know, the safety of his family at the hands, at the mercy of the district attorney's office, because he must clear his conscience, and is an upstanding young American. All right, now let me ask you this. Lynn, supposing Al, in his own consciousness, does not know anything, and you run him through, you said something about hypnosis, you would be willing to take him through any truth serum and polygraph and so forth and so on, I read his statement. There's nothing in his statement that indicates Al consciously knows or willingly told anything about the conspiracy of David Ferries or certainly didn't even know Clay Shaw. Now, how can that be changed? When was the statement made? Uh, sometime in late 1966? Farrow was still living, wasn't he? Yeah. Oh, I see. You know, he had no choice. He was scared. You know, I mean, he was a married man. He had a father-in-law, you know, wife and kids and this and that and everything else. He's scared. Well, have you any real, uh, let me ask you this, besides your personal opinion, have you anything really on Al Bo Buff that he knows anything we might clear up? Um, no, really, the only thing we're doing or have been trying to do is to have Al tell us. Well, he's already been up there the one time. Now, what more do you want now? We don't believe him. We don't believe him. Let's put it that way. Technically, he might have been an accessory, but we have no choice, you know. I mean, we're all seeking the information. A discussion of Garrison's case followed. Yeah, Lynn, let me 
ask you this. Supposing we agree to this and it's all drawn down and after you run Albo Buff through the three deals, it comes out, he knows nothing about the whole thing. What? What then? Will you still give him the money and still give him the position? No, that's not the deal. What is the deal? The deal is that Al fills in the missing links. Well, supposing he doesn't know what, uh, who are the other assassins. Well, he can't fill in the missing links if he doesn't know. And that's what the deal is predicated on. That he knows? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, boy. You better let me get to talk to him some more in order to find out if we can. He told me, and I'll be frank with you, that he knows nothing at all about the assassination. Same thing he told you and told the DA's office early in November. And now, this is going to have to change his story. If he does, in fact, feel that he knows something about it, perhaps he will then say, all right. Okay, well, there you have it, the infamous transcript. When it became known that Ignatius had made this tape recording, Garrison's office drew up a statement for Bo Buff to sign, stating that there had been no bribe attempt and that Garrison's staff had never tried to solicit false testimony from him. Bo Buff signed it, having been assured by Lynn Loisel that if he didn't sign it, certain files on Bo Buff and certain photographs of Bo Buff and Ferry confiscated from Ferry's apartment following his death, would be circulated to the press and elsewhere. To this day, Bobuff insists the statement was signed only under duress. Shortly after this incident, the existence of the attempted alleged bribe became widely known. With a tape in hand, a tape that was valuable, you, Ignatius, would put a different hat on. He would now be broker for the sale of the tape, he attempted to sell the tape to Clay Shaw's lawyers, but they declined to buy it, and he attempted to sell it to NBC for use in their white paper special. Given the nature of the circumstances, NBC also declined to pay for the evidence. Ignisios would shop it to other venues as well, to no avail. In the meantime, the New Orleans Police Department launched an investigation to determine if Garrison and his folks had indeed extended a bribe to Al Bobuff. They would investigate the case and decline to take any actions effectively clearing Loisel and Ivan of any wrongdoing related to the bribery charge. In the hullabaloo that accompanied all of this, Garrison's office would argue that the tape had been altered along the way. Altered, I guess, in some way that either eliminated certain things said or spliced things together in a way that obscured the intent of Loisel in the conversation. By now, the tape copies were few and far between, and the transcript was floating around. As part of their investigation, the New Orleans Police Department supposedly compared their version of the transcript with the recorded version of the original tape supplied in person by Hugh Ignatius for such purpose and the police department found no discrepancies between the tape and the transcript. Who knows just exactly what everyone was listening to at the time? 
Were the tapes altered? It sounds like there may have been a reason to believe that, but in fact, it seems like they were not, or at least not at the time the investigation was done by the New Orleans Police Department. But we can't be sure of that. And still, the questions linger. Was the written transcript true and complete and accurate? Or was it simply now a replica of an altered tape? No one knows. Likely no one will ever know for sure. But at least back at that moment, there was documentation of a comparison done, and it was mentioned in the New Orleans Police Department report on the investigation. And the excerpt of that report reads as follows. Mr. Hugh Agnisios then played the tape as Major Palmisano and I followed the copy of the transcript and compared the typewritten words with the voices recorded on the tape and concluded that the transcript coincided with the information on the tape. Mr. Ignatius advised us that the tape we were reviewing at that time was the original tape, which had been made of the conversation previously mentioned, and that he had preserved it and retained it in his exclusive control since it was recorded. Al Bobuff was interviewed by NBC for the White Paper, and a few episodes back on JFK, The Enduring Secret, you heard the entire audio from the televised version of the documentary. But what you didn't hear was the entire unedited transcript of the NBC interview with Al Bobuff that was done for that program. NBC made the entirety of those transcripts available to researchers, and it turns out that what was in the actual interview and transcripts, the part that got cut and was left on the cutting room floor, turned out to be some of the most interesting tidbits related to this investigation. We're going to read it now, and what it reveals are allegations that Al Bobuff was threatened with his life by the garrison investigators. But let's not spoil the show yet. Let's just simply read what he said. And again, I'm only reading, so I'll have to adopt a little bit of an accent for each of the characters. There are only two in this dialogue now, the NBC interviewer and Al Bobuff. So I'll try to make a distinction between the two. And of course, be aware that this whole setup for the white paper was designed to smear Garrison to the extent that they could do it with available information. It was probably the practical aspect of choosing between what they felt was the worst of the worst to put on television with the limited time that they had and what they left in the available transcripts for researchers. Oh well, the subtleties of the smear continue. And let's face it, the truth probably lies somewhere in between, as it usually does. So let's listen in now to my not-so-professional rendition of the full transcript of the NBC interview with Al Bobuff. Al, now, after this meeting between your attorney, Hugh Ignatius, Lynn Loisel, and yourself was recorded, and which we have discussed, what happened to the tape recording that was made at that time? Did you go to any law enforcement agencies with it at that point? Well, after the discussion, the tape had been sent to several law enforcement agencies. One copy had been sent to the well, a transcript plus a statement with my signature on it had been sent to the U.S. Attorney General and another copy to the New Orleans Attorney General and another copy was given to Langridge in Jefferson Parish. 
Now, District Attorney Langridge, did he, in addition to having a copy of the transcript, did he ever hear the recording? Yes, he did. He read. Myself and Hugh Ignacios, my attorney at that time, had uh, went to Langridge's home. Now, Langridge read the transcript. The tape was played, so he had full knowledge at that time of what had taken place. Did he make any comment at that time? Yes, he did. He said, you'll have to come into the office sometime or other tomorrow or the next day and talk to my investigators and some of my legal aides and see if we can keep this thing around and see what we've got here. Did you ever go to talk to him again? No, the issue was never pushed. Now, after you had sent transcripts of this recording to several investigative agencies, the Louisiana Attorney General, the U.S. Attorney in New Orleans, and District Attorney Langridge. What happened after that? Uh, Hugh Ignatius, my attorney, I believe tried to sell the tape to the news media or whatnot and was not as successful. Why was he trying to sell it? Well, uh, you know, press for money, I guess. I, I I would like to cut that out of this interview. Don't worry about that. Now, let's let's ask you this. An offer was made for you to testify. You said that you interpreted this as a bribe, and you testified to something which was not true. Why didn't you accept the offer? Because I, I wouldn't more than feel right knowing that I lied on the stand, plus taking the chance of being charged with perjury. But you did consider it at one point, did you not? No, I didn't. I considered it to the point of telling the truth and giving a blank check on my mind to hypnosis, sodium pentothal, and a lie detector test. You never considered taking what you considered to be a bribe? No. Now, after the district attorney's office, the New Orleans district attorney's office, found out about the tape recording that had been made, what happened? They came up to my house. They, they came to speak to me. Who? Lynn Loisel and Louis Ivan, and I invited them in. I was shocked to see them after what had taken place. Lynn Loisel said, you know Al. And I said, what do you mean, Lynn? And he said, well, I don't care to go into it, he said, but when you play dirty politics, you get hurt. If you want to play dirty pool, we can play. You're going to get hurt in the end. We just came by to confirm that you did make these statements to several law enforcement agencies. About the bribery attempt? Yes. As they left out the door again, I was motioned to come back outside. This time, my wife was listening at the front door. We got quite boisterous, and Lynn Loisel said, You know, Al, you did us a dirty deal. And as I said, not really, Lynn. You wanted me to testify to something that wasn't true. You wanted me to give testimony, yet you didn't want to give anything back. You wanted to make a deal, but you wanted false information. I was willing to give you a blank check on my mind and for a small return favor, that's all. And I said, and you didn't come through with nothing. And I tried my best in good faith to help you out. And you had nothing for me there at all. Now, what happened after uh, these two investigators, uh, what, what ensued there? Uh, the same conversation I'm talking about took place outside after we were talking about the dirty politics and everything and that had been played out. And Lynn Loisel got quite upset and said, you know, Al, I don't want to get in trouble over this. No, no, it was Lou Ivon talking, correction. 
I am sorry. Louis Ivan said, I don't want to have any of my investigators arrested or picked up for any reason that you might think might be a bribe or anything. And I said, well, Lou, wasn't that what it was? And they said, do you want to let it go like that, Al? And I said, no. What can I do about it? He said, well, come down to the office tomorrow and we'll talk about it. Well, then Lynn Loisel started out again and said, you know, Al, if anything happens out of this, you are going to get a hot load of lead. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, just what I said, you are going to get a hot load of lead in so many words. I I don't care to comment on over the air. Did they threaten you with anything else? No, but that alone, when he pointed his finger at me, says you are going to get a hot load of lead up your, you, you know, and he stopped short. Now, did they attempt to hold anything over you? They got some pictures of me that they said they would hold over my head if I came out with this. They threatened to give these pictures out like they were going out of style. If I came out in the open and said that these charges of bribery, do you know that they have pictures or did they just say? I know they have the pictures. Where do these pictures come from? Out of, you know, off off my possession. These are the pictures taken of you in 1963 and held over since then. And for all I know, just for an occasion like this. Would you say they are pictures showing you in a somewhat compromising situation? Yes. They are pictures you would not want displayed around on the street. Correct. What happened after this meeting? I went up to his office the next day, and I guess you could say I was forced into having this stuff held over my head and threatened to sign a statement to the effect that I didn't hear their attempt to bribe me or accept money for information for a guaranteed job on an airline. I signed a statement stating that no bribe attempt. You know, I didn't understand this trade for information and a job and money to be a bribe. Why did you sign the statement? For fear. One, number one, my wife, the care of my family, and number two, the pictures. You say they threatened you? Did they threaten you in the office that day additionally? No, no. How long were you in that office? Six hours. Did you have an attorney? No. Did you ever ask for an attorney? They preferred I didn't bring him up there. What was the nature of that conversation over six hours? Many things. One that I shouldn't come forth. One of the main issues at hand was about the new code, stating that any exchange of money for information is a bribe. They said that no new code existed, and they swore up and down to this. Now, on the day you went to the district attorney's office and signed a statement that you did not understand the offer of money to be a bribe, did you sign that statement realizing that it was not the truth as you realized it? Yes, but I had no choice. I mean, I wasn't taken by force and held by gunpoint to sign it, but in view of the fact that, you know, what they had dangling over my head, I I couldn't resist. What else did they have beside the pictures and the physical threat? Nothing, really. Did they ever present any files? Or Yes, they got a few folders full of literature about my past history, you know, juvenile record. Were you a tough kid? Well, I'll say this, that anybody who loses their father, you know, at, at a time in his life until he grows up to be an adult, uh, did you consider this part of the threat presenting of these files to you? 
Yes, I, I did, because he concealed the statements by a principal in which I had quite an affair with through trouble in school and possibly several teachers who could swear up and down. Maybe I should have been in jail at the time. What did they say about this? Did they just show them to you or did they say they were going to use them? They didn't show anything to me. They just dangled the pictures around for a few seconds to assure me that they had something. And I had to take their word on the rest. I actually asked to see the files, but they said no. But perhaps at a later date. Did they tell you what was in the file? Yes, and also that I might make headlines as Ferry's lover and whatnot. Garrison has accused Ferry of being a homosexual, but David Ferry has never been convicted of any such charge, and I was also threatened with that same night that they were at my house. Do you think that you present a threat to them at this point? Yes, I do. Why? Well, because I am one of, of many witnesses who have been intimidated. Not witnesses. I mean, I've been intimidated, one of many, and I'm coming forth now with this, and I am sure, I hope many others will follow behind me who have been intimidated. Of your own knowledge, do you know of any other members that have been intimidated? I haven't talked to any, actually, who have been intimidated, but I have read statements by some of them who have been intimidated. Al, after Lynn Loisel and Louis Ivon appeared at your house and you say intimidated you, you went to the district attorney's office the same day. Tell us what transpired there. Well, the DA's office, you know, Lou, Lou Ivon and Lynn Loisel greeted me, of course, getting me to sign a statement to the effect that I didn't hear the bribe didn't hear what I considered to be a bribe or an exchange for a job or anything. That was to deny that you ever... You signed a statement to deny that I heard that the conversation we had to be a bribe or any you know job guarantee. Was the statement that you signed a correct statement? Did you know it to be a correct statement? No, I didn't. Why did you sign it? Well, because of the pictures and the threat to hand them down and to be exposed. Not to be exposed, but you know, subpoenaed. Subpoenaed where? In front of the grand jury. Did they make other threats along that line? Yes. The night they came by, they said that. They had a subpoena for me. If I wanted to come down willingly, I could come down and no subpoena would be issued. I went down there and come to find out the reason why they had the subpoena was to embarrass me publicly if I didn't want to cooperate in signing the statement, along with the pictures and different records that they had on me. Did they ever suggest any other action they might take against you? No, no. Besides the threat, the pictures, and the embarrassment of being subpoenaed. Did they ever mention indictment, perhaps? No, no, they never got that far. Can you relate your situation to anyone else in the case? Yes, Leighton Martins. They said Leighton Martins didn't cooperate with them like they wanted him to, so they, they had subpoenaed him and embarrassed him publicly. Had he been indicted by that time? Yes. I don't know whether he had been subpoenaed or indicted. I know he had been brought out to the cameras. Just in summary, what were all the threats they made to you and where did they make them? One was to shoot me. One was to show these pictures of me and hand out all my records and files that they had collected on me for the past three years, part of it through the investigation, and try and subpoena me and try to publicize the fact that I was a friend of David Ferry's and try to embarrass me publicly. Were they going to try to make you more of a friend of David Ferry's? 
Were they going to imply that? Yes, they were. Lynn Loisel said, if anything comes of this, Al, the first thing that is going to hit the headlines is Al Ferry's lover. And from previous statements that Jim Garrison had made that David Ferry was a homosexual, but David Ferry had never been convicted of a homosexual charge. Have you ever talked to Jim Garrison? Never. But in your dealings with Lynn Loisel and Ivan, were you always under the impression that they were acting on his behalf? Yes, they always stated the boss. You know, they talked to him of being the boss. The, the boss said this, the boss said that. And I'm purely under the impression and understanding that they were representing Jim Garrison. They had told me that Jim Garrison wanted to see me himself. I never did get to see him. I asked why, and they said that he didn't want to be bothered with me to the extent that if he had to spend all his time with petty things like this, he wouldn't be able to get anything done. When you went into the office, other than asking you to sign the statement, did they attempt to have you further cooperate with them? In other words, were there any further attempts to make? No, no, the deal was if I kept my mouth shut and signed the statement, they wouldn't bother me anymore. It would be sort of a Chinese draw. Right, something like a contract. You know, you sign a contract, they leave you alone. And that's why you signed the contract? Yeah, because I didn't want to be publicly embarrassed by being subpoenaed in front of a Roman circus. Is that what you think it is? Yes. Today you went to a private office in Washington and submitted to an extensive polygraph test. I am going to read the questions which you were asked by the polygraph operator, and I would like you to give me the same responses that you gave to these exact questions during the polygraph test. 1. Did David Ferry ever tell you he was directly involved with either Shaw or Oswald in the assassination of President Kennedy? No. Did you ever know personally anyone named Clay Shaw, Clem Bertrand, or Clay Bertrand? No. Did you ever know a man named Lee Harvey Oswald or Leon Oswald personally? No. Did you actually believe Loisel attempted to bribe you to give him false information concerning President Kennedy's assassination? Yes. Did Loisel threaten you, in effect, to put a load of hot lead on you if you ever accused him of attempted bribery? Yes. Did Loisel threaten to circulate compromising pictures of you if you ever accused him of attempting to bribe you? Yes. The questions which I just read to you, you answered in a manner you just described, is that right, to the polygraph operator? Did that polygraph operator tell you whether you're shown to be telling the truth to all these questions? Beyond a shadow of a doubt, to his knowledge, I was telling the truth. So you, Phil, on the basis of the polygraph test, which you submitted to today, that you have been borne out in your statements that, one, you were approached by a member of the district attorney's staff with a bribery offer. Correct. You were intimidated, threatened by members of the district attorney's staff after that. Yes. That you do not know anything about the assassination or David Ferry's possible involvement. That's correct. That you don't know Clay Shaw, Lee Harvey Oswald, the so-called fellow plotters? No, not at all. Based on the lie detector test, which you took today, do you feel this is a confirmation of the story you told tonight? that you were approached by a member of the district attorney's office with a bribe attempt and later intimidated to hide that bribe attempt? Yes. 
Are you also saying that this lie detector is a confirmation of the fact that you do not know anything about the assassination of President Kennedy? Definitely. All right, well, there you have it again. I want to try that technique. Go somewhere, have my own lie detector test taken by someone, and then make my own representations about how it came out. It's really an amazing piece. I won't even call it journalism. It's really an amazing endeavor which NBC undertook. And again, there were reasons for it. So so it can't be completely criticized. But my gosh. Well, one thing is for sure. It was the big easy. But just because it was the big easy doesn't make it easy to discern what the truth here really was. But maybe we can dig a little further in a future episode to figure out more about all of this. I wish I knew someone who was more than knee-deep in it at the time, or at least someone who might be a little bit closer to it who could help us through the slog and the fog of all of this. (laughs) Wait a minute. Maybe Joan Mellon can help. Well, Let's see. Maybe this is something we can get her to talk about when she appears on the podcast. Well, I hope you've enjoyed today's episode as we wind down the Garrison series. Next up in the next episode is Jive Talking Dean Andrews. But for now, I'm hungry again. I'm going to eat a sandwich. Ham sandwich tonight. But I just got a brand new Traeger grill. So it may be barbecue in the near future. Fourth of July is just around the corner, you know. Oh, and just one more reminder as we close for the day. Before you go eat a sandwich too, please do go to YouTube and subscribe to JFK, The Enduring Secret. It will take just a second, and it would be a nice thank you for the episodes you've been listening to. Alvin Bobuff was brought to Washington by us to submit to a lie detector test. We paid for the test, for his expenses, and for his lawyers. We paid nothing more. Did you actually believe Lynn Loisel attempted to bribe you to give him false information concerning President Kennedy's assassination? Yes. Al, I have before me here what is purported to be the transcript of the conversation that was recorded there uh, between your attorney, yourself, and Lynn Loisel. Now, are you prepared to say that basically it's a correct transcription of the record of the conversation that took place? Nothing's been cut. It's accurate to every detail. I'm going to read a couple of phrases from it, and I'd like to ask you some questions about it. This is Lynn Lazell speaking. And I said, the boss is in a position, he's speaking to your attorney, The boss is in a position to put him in a job, you know, possibly of his choosing, of Al's choosing. Also, that they would be, we would make a hero out of him instead of a villain, you understand. Everything would be to your satisfaction. We can change the story around, you know, enough to positively, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know, eliminate him into any type of conspiracy or what have you. Later on, he says... And I quote again, 
I would venture to say, well, I'm, you know, fairly certain we could put $3,000. He snaps his fingers, just like that, you know. I'm sure we'd help him financially. I'm sure we, real quick, we could get him a job. Now, is that basically the substance of, of the offer that was made in front of your attorney at that point? That's correct. Mr. Do you believe he was acting with Garrison's? Uh, yes, my attorney asked him, did, uh, was Jim Garrison aware of his presence and what he was going to say? And he said yes. After the district attorney's office, the New Orleans district attorney's office, found out about this tape recording that had been made, what happened? They've got some pictures uh, of me uh, that they said they'd hold over my head if I uh, came out with this. They threatened to give these pictures out like they were going out of style if I come out in the open and said they need ch uh, charges of bribery. The deputy New Orleans police superintendent cleared Loisel and Ivan of Bobuff's charges. He said money had been offered to Bobuff, but that the offer did not violate the police code of conduct because historically police have paid informers. He said that he could find no evidence that Bobuff had been threatened. Thank you for listening to episode 174 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.